Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Welcome to FT Politics, a weekly discussion on what's happening in Westminster from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne. In this episode, we'll be discussing the two big stories that have dominated throughout the summer, Labour's anti-Semitism travails and the Brexit stalemate eating up the Conservatives. I'm delighted to be joined by Alex Barker, our Brussels Bureau Chief, Whitehall Editor James Blitz, Chief Political Correspondent Jim Picard and Deputy Opinion Editor Miranda Green. Thank you all for joining. And if you like this episode of FT Politics, don't forget to subscribe for all the usual channels to receive it every Saturday morning. So after our summer break, Westminster returns with a great sense of deja vu. The Labour Party tried to focus on domestic policy throughout August, but was all derailed by a constant stream of stories about anti-Semitism and, once again, Jeremy Corbyn's past actions, speeches and interviews. The rather whether to adopt the IHRA's full definition of anti-Semitism came to a head this week, with the party's ruling National Executive Committee giving it the thumbs up. And on top of all that, more MPs are facing no confidence votes, while talk of a new centre party emerging is growing. So Jim Picard, let's have just a brief recap in August that uh, it's silly season, a quiet season in Westminster, Parliament isn't sitting, so there's an opportunity for opposition to do things a bit differently. And Labour's idea was to have its built-in Britain campaign, which was a sort of slightly protectionist, even maybe Trumpian thing about promoting British manufacturing. That got absolutely no traction because of this continued route about anti-Semitism and lots of footage was dug up of things Jeremy Corbyn said in the past that kept this route going and going and going and it's still not really over either sure and um emphasizing that this is i'm not giving my personal views here necessarily but trying to be objective about things they're already facing an uphill struggle in terms of getting their message across because most of the media doesn't particularly want jeremy corbyn to be prime minister i think that much is obvious and in terms of the commercial media i'm not talking about the bbc i think they play a very straight bat and therefore a built-in britain campaign may not get great headlines even at the best of times even in August, given that they are swimming against the tide in media terms. But yes, the issue over anti-Semitism, which is very much of their making, has been the one thing that's been in the headlines day in, day out. And quite a few of the senior people around Jeremy Corbyn are very frustrated about this, and they blame the press in part, but they are also getting fed up with Jeremy Corbyn and his obstinance and his refusal to accept that he could possibly be at fault over any of this or that he has any case to answer and he is continuing to dig this massive hole not just for himself but also for Britain's only big left-wing party. So you said that this is a row of their own making and I, I agree with this because it's they haven't been decisive in tackling this. To an outside observer, the obvious thing would be for Jeremy Corbyn to apologise clearly and straightforwardly for any offence he'd said in the past, acknowledge maybe that his thinking or understanding of anti-Semitism has changed, adopt the IHRA definition in full, which they've only done after being forced to, but he just won't do that. And as you said, the obstinance has become the centre of this dispute. 
just to be fair to him, there was a moment of apology over that recording that came to light where he appeared to be saying that Zionists didn't have any sense of irony and people were furious because Zionists and Jewish, we know they are different things, but a lot of Zionists are Jewish and a lot of Jews are Zionists. So it's the kind of place we need to be very careful. And he popped up with an apology saying, back at the time I used to phrase Zionist, it's not a phrase I use today because this is so sensitive. So he, he did apologise there. When the NEC met at the start of the week and they were discussing accepting the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism, which is used by 31 countries, and previously they've accepted the definition, but they hadn't accepted all of the 11 examples. And they were holding out on four of them. And we had the spectacle earlier in the week of this very lengthy meeting of the National Executive Committee where it wasn't clear why it was going on for hours and why they seemed to be stuck on accepting these four things. And eventually emerged that part of the problem was that Corbyn himself seemed to be happy to accept an IHRA definition, which was that it's basically anti-Semitic to criticise the foundation of Israel and call it a racist enterprise. And yet he'd come up with his own personal qualification, which seemed to say exactly that thing. And therefore... A lot of people, even trying to be fair-minded to Jeremy Corbyn, can see from that moment that this particular row, he is very much creating it, or at least continuing it. And I think that's what we take away from all this, Miranda Green, is that Jeremy Corbyn is the key person in this. A lot of other issues with the Labour leadership and their travails are painted on people around Jeremy Corbyn and their competence and their strategy. But this issue has all been about him and his character here. And there was talk briefly in August of another no-confidence vote. I don't really know what that would achieve because he's completely solidified his position at the top of Labour. But there does been that sense. And I think you have seen exasperation from people like John McDonnell, for example, who has highlighted that they are very close to power. These people who thought they were never going to be anywhere near elected office. And it all seems to be getting sort of eroded by, as Jim put it, you know, the obstinance of Mr Corbyn on this issue. I agree with you completely. And I think that there are two issues to look at here. One is the substance of the anti-Semitism problem and the fact that actually it's Corbyn himself who's the block to resolving it. That video that emerged, Jim's right, he may well have given a limited apology, but it's extremely serious the way that he was talking about an ethnic group. You can't really do that. It's not a respectable way to conduct mainstream politics and you certainly shouldn't be asking to hold the highest office in the land if you can express yourself in that way about a religious minority. On the Labour Party wider issue, I think you're absolutely right, Seb. The frustration of John McDonnell who is somebody who really wants to gain power, must be unimaginable at this point. You know, McDonnell has put out an economic programme. He wants to change the UK into a socialist country and he's thought about how he wants to do it. And yet he is chained to (laughs) Jeremy Corbyn, someone who's much more interested in the views that he's held for the last few decades, which he won't change, and much more interested in talking about, frankly, Middle East politics than he is about what they want to do with the UK. I think this is actually going to become one of the key things over the next few months, this tension at the top of the Labour Party between those who really do want to gain power and those who actually are still doing a sort of elevated sort of left-wing politics, which isn't really about government. And so I think it's been very interesting to watch that play out. And in a sense, all of these stories that have surfaced over the summer, like the re-election to the NEC of a left-winger, narrowly beating a kind of more moderate figure in Eddie Izzard. All of those stories, they just give you the sense that, yes, the left has now captured the Labour Party totally. 
But what will those at the top of the party do about this tension between are we a platform for left-wing views or do we want power? And also, what do the other people in the Labour Party who are now completely pushed out choose to do about it? And I think one other element of this, which is sometimes overlooked, is that the outriders for Jeremy Corbyn on social media and the alternative press, they are in some ways making it worse for him because they double down on this. They hate any criticism of Corbyn so much It infuriates them. They think it's all a mainstream media plot. Even when you have this community, the Jewish community in Britain, really worried about this. And there was a poll this week, I think it was the Jewish Chronicle conducted it, where 40% of Jewish people who they spoke to said they were considering leaving the country if Jeremy Corbyn became prime minister, which is an absolutely shocking statistic. And the reaction of a lot of these hard left people on social media was just to double down and basically say, well, it's still a minority. The headline should be most of them would stay or they would sort of say that this is all the media's fault, that it's just a big misunderstanding. They describe it as a plot and all the rest of it. And I think where some of the senior members of the shadow cabinet or even people in Corbyn's team do have elements of pragmatism, there is no pragmatism in social media, Corbyn Easterland. It is like a cult, which I've said before, in some elements. I did that lunch with the FT with John Landsman, It was published a week ago, who's the founder of Momentum, which is the pro-Corbyn support group. You know, he was saying he he was getting quite perplexed and upset about some of the anti-Semitism stuff in his party. But when I said to him, you know, what can you do about it? He just said, well, you know, it's not like that. Momentum is a total grassroots organisation where people can basically say or do what they want. And maybe it is a bit out of control. To pick up a point Miranda said about the NEC, this was another development we had as well, that this is Labour's ruling body and they have elections of ordinary Labour members who are, sit on there to represent views. And this is all to do again with the balance of power and where key decisions are made. And the slate that was put forward by Momentum, the Momentum 9, which then became the Momentum 8, when Peter Wilsman, who came up with some comments that were interpreted as some as anti-Semitic, others as offensive, and he was still elected to the NEC. So again, you've had this sense that that part of the party, they are in complete control. So they can sort of really get away with whatever they want, this out-of-control point you make, Jim, that you can have as much criticism and people like Tony Blair and Gordon Brown popping up and David Blunkett as well saying something has to be done about this, but they don't really seem to care. No, exactly. And in that respect, when you talk about the nine who are elected to the NEC, it's quite an important point that it means that when they take their seats later in the autumn the ruling body of the Labour Party will be significantly even further to the left. And Jeremy Corbyn was unable to carry his personal alteration to the whole IHRA definition earlier in the week because he was beaten. The unions disagreed with it. There's someone called Raya Wolfson, who's a Jewish Momentum representative there, who also disagreed with it. Some of those will be gone by the ultimate and replaced by much more hardline people. And they may want to come back to this in the way that Jeremy Corbyn would like. And it's kind of never ending. And there are those who still think that it's possible for someone who is relatively moderate, who's been loyal to Jeremy Corbyn to become the next leader and somehow reshape the party in a slightly more moderate way. People talk about Emily Thornberry or Keir Starmer or someone like that. The new rumour on the block you will have seen is that maybe Chris Williamson who's a real hard-left outrider for Jeremy Corbyn, could be a potential future leader. And this sounds a little bit outlandish to some, but if you look at how aligned Chris Williamson's views are with the pro-Corbyn media like Canary or what they call Navarra media and a lot of the kind of angry people out there on social media, it's not impossible to see a scenario where the next leader is exactly the same as Corbyn, but maybe a little bit less kind of cuddly. So that leads you then 
to what the others do. Because if you're a, I won't say right wing Labour MP, because I actually think that's a ridiculous thing to say about most of these people who are unhappy with the Corbyn leadership. But if you are a sort of soft left or traditional Labour MP, what do you now do? Your party has actually been taken away from you. And, you know, somebody like Joan Ryan, who faced this vote of no confidence in her London constituency this week. She is saying, you know, I'm Labour through and through. This tribal loyalty, this devotion to the cause is clearly a sort of lifelong and sincerely held belief by most of them. But there's a moral question about whether you can face the electorate at the next general election saying, I recommend that Jeremy Corbyn become prime minister or indeed I recommend that Chris Williamson become prime minister. Can you really do that with a straight face? And I think the pressure for them to either mount a proper campaign to, you know, have an alternative vehicle within the Labour Party, an alternative to momentum of some sort, I don't know what that would be, or to split or to have an alternative programme at the next election. They're going to have to come up with something because it is not credible to ask voters to vote for a leader who you yourself believe is dangerous. When Jeremy Corbyn first got elected, people sort of saw it as a temporary aberration, a kind of rush of blood to the head. But the analogy I've, I've been using for a while is it is like a hostile takeover. It is as if the Financial Times has been taken over by a new owner who wants us to be a kind of nationalistic anti-market, whatever the opposite of the FT is. And do you stick around because you've been working for 10 or 20 years here or do you say this isn't actually for me? It's a dilemma for them. But I think a lot of them, the kind of less brave ones, if you like, or the in some ways more rational ones, realise that it's awfully hard to get elected unless you're under a Tory or Labour banner. And the equation always comes back to that fact. But it does become a slightly different equation because we've seen also, Miranda, some no-confidence voting MPs. And obviously that happened with Frank Field, who's now resigned the Labour whip, maybe pushed out the Labour Party, we don't know. Joan Ryan, as you said, Labour Friends of Israel, head she's had a no-confidence vote. Gavin Schubber, who's the MP for Luton South, he's also had a no-confidence vote. And this is just going to go on and on and on. And the real crunch point, I suppose, is if these people lose the support of their constituency Labour parties and they're going to get deselected, which I think everyone sees is coming on the horizon, then the atmosphere for moving changes and the calculation also shifts as well. Well, so these rumours of sort of reinventing the centre ground have been churning around for a couple of years. And it's really hard to know whether something will happen sooner rather than later. They've always said, these people who are very discontented, the centrist discomfort, as it were, has always been sort of divided into those who say, we've got to do something, we've got to do something now. And those who say, Brexit is such an enormous divisive distraction, we can't possibly do anything until after March 2019. And I think that's still where the balance lies. But this anti-Semitism row is, I was saying, this kind of moral crisis about the Labour leadership is actually bringing a sense of urgency to some of these discussions. Jim is quite right. Under a first-past-the-post system, all these experiments with starting new parties, even starting new movements, they're pretty much doomed from the start. You can't have Macron here. But lots of them, for example, have been sort of tapping on the expertise of people who work for Trudeau in Canada because that's much nearer to our system. And there are are ways of reinventing an electable, moderate, centre-left voice. But you've got to have the right person. You've got to be saying the right things. And you've got to tap into the major changes in public opinion that have occurred over the last few years. And the problem with, for example, this idea to sort of open up the Lib Dems, which Vince Cable has started this week, all of these things... An anti-Brexit movement can't become the new force to rescue British politics. So it really has to have some very radical thinking behind it. And it has to have the right personalities, which are sadly lacking. 
Exactly, because when we talk about the centre ground of British politics, it's very easy if you are of a certain generation to think that that was where Britain was in 1997. The centre ground is something that's now quite hard to define. And firstly, is the centre ground pro-Brexit or anti-Brexit? Well, given that a majority voted for Brexit, possibly not. Is the majority in favour of austerity or anti-austerity? I mean, look back at last year's general election. The thing that was really popular, much more popular than Corbyn himself, was the Labour manifesto, where you put various extra pennies on corporation tax and you tax the rich and you did more borrowing. Whether that's wise or not, that's not for me to say, but you had a flood of extra money going into public spending. And that was you middle-class bribes, to be fair. Free university tuition, that's a middle-class bribe. But there were bribes for almost every demographic. That's the thing. There mm. were bribes for people with small kids. There were bribes for middle-class students, yes, mm. but there were also bribes for pensioners. There were bribes for people at work. There were bribes for people who didn't work. At the end of the day, a lot of voters do think in a kind of personalised way, which was one of the secrets of New Labour. You know, they th- were more interested in buying a conservatory or having good health care for their family than they were in political philosophy. And finally, very briefly, Miranda, we're recording this on Friday as it announced Vince Cable is going to step down. Once Brexit's been resolved, I don't quite know what that means, but he's essentially going to be leaving the leadership of the Lib Dems probably sometime next year. Does that raise the chance of the Lib Dems being a vehicle for this, do you think? Well, first of all, he will be stepping down next year, not when Brexit is resolved, because if he was doing that, he'd be sticking around for a long, long time. I think the Lib Dems have got so many serious underlying problems. If you look, for example, of their traditional heartland in the southwest, which I know Jim knows very well as well, Labour is now in second place behind the Tories on most of those seats that were hereditary Lib Dem seats. Structurally, they've got a lot of issues to tackle, but they know that they can't do anything on their own. And that is a step forward. So, you know, they realise that they have to be part of a broader story of reinvention of of an alternative. Because, again, do we really think that the British electorate only deserves a choice between a very left-wing Labour Party and a Tory party that represents hard Brexit and the Windrush scandal? I think we probably do deserve something else as well. If it was a summer of stalemate for Labour, it was much the same for Brexit. Lots of talks went on behind the scenes throughout the summer weeks, but no obvious progress was made. Meanwhile, back in the UK, people like Boris Johnson have been increasingly banging the drum for scrapping the Prime Minister's Chequers plan and thinking again. And obviously, time is running out. We're coming up to the six-month deadline before the UK leaves the EU and has still not quite got a deal within our grasp. James Blitz, let's just look at what happened over the summer. Really, it was all dominated in the UK by Brexit voices. It was Boris Johnson writing his weekly Daily Telegraph columns, urging the Prime Minister Chuck Checkers, backed by David Davis, Steve Baker, the former Degsu minister. But the Prime Minister is very much sticking to this, and I don't think she's really going to change course, even though no progress is really being made. That is correct. I think if you were to sum up where things are today compared to where they were when Mrs May unveiled the Chequers plan, it's that she's still sticking to it, but it's coming under an enormous amount of pressure both in London and in Brussels. What you've seen in this first week back at Westminster is Jacob Rees-Mogg and the hardline European research group basically saying they're not going to back the Chequers model, in other words, the UK in the single market for goods and agricultural goods, outside the single market for services. So they're rejecting that. You've seen 
and Alex will say more about this, but you've seen a clear reluctance from Michel Barney and the Commission to go down that road, even though they're rejecting the idea that they've said that Chequers is dead. And you've seen other ideas coming along to try and replace Chequers. You've had Nick Bowles, the Conservative MP, talking about the idea that if Mrs May can't get Chequers through, we ought to move to the idea of the European Economic Area as a safe harbour, which is an idea that has been mooted pretty much right from the start, going right back to when the Brexit referendum happened. So I think to sum things up for where things are at the end of this first week back, it's that Mrs May is sticking to checkers, but there are real questions about whether she can get this through. So Alex, give us the view from Brussels on that, because as I said, when the checkers thing came out at the end of July, I think it was, it got a tentatively warm welcome because although it seems to be perceived as cherry picking, trying to pick off some parts of EU membership, it was seen as something a bit more realistic than what the government had been talking about before. And as James just said, Michel Barnier has been very careful in his language about this, not saying that we're not going to talk about this, but at the same time saying there are major issues with it. Indeed. First of all, they welcomed the Brits putting something detailed and comprehensive on paper. That was a very welcome step. They previously had been dealing with a lot of mixed signals, noise, uncertainty. So, of course, they had to welcome that. They've been very reserved and careful and patient in terms of trying not to make their criticisms plain spoken and of a kind that would explode in British politics. They don't want to add to the pressure the Prime Minister is facing. They see quite enough of that in Westminster. So they've been pretty careful. But as you'll see from any uh, Michel Barnier statement or speech or interview, they have some pretty deep concerns about whether the Chequers plan is workable on customs and the common rule book for goods. And secondly, they think that even if it was workable, it would raise some pretty fundamental issues for the EU in terms of whether it unpicks and unravels and re-engineers the single market that they built here in a way that leaves it in a weaker state for them. And so what we're seeing is them kind of dancing around this and trying to find a way to help this negotiation come to a conclusion, to an agreement, to allow Theresa May to have enough to help the politics of the withdrawal treaty being passed, while not making promises that they would see as really undermining the integrity of the single market. So what's going to happen over the next few weeks, James? Because we've got this upcoming Salzburg summit, which is going to be a very big moment where there is talk there may be some movement on both sides, maybe some movement from the EU27 leaders and some movement for Theresa May. But everybody's in a very narrow bind here. If Theresa May offers more compromises and the big one is the Irish backstop to essentially agree to the EU's backstop, which would be to um, effectively separate economically Northern Ireland from the rest of the UK. That would cause her great problems with the Democratic Unionist Party, who are backing up her government, as well as hardline Brexiters. And then, as Alex was just saying, on the EU27 side, they don't want to give something that looks like cherry-picking, because that will then look as if the UK is getting a good deal, and particularly given the volatile political atmosphere elsewhere in Europe, could still point towards other countries thinking about quitting too. Yeah, if one looks at what has to be agreed, there are basically two aspects of this whole thing. One of them is the framework for the future trade relationship between the UK and the EU, and the other is 
the question of the backstop or insurance policy that guarantees an invisible border across Ireland come what may. On the first point, the future framework, this is going to be part of a political declaration. It doesn't have to be written into legal text. And therefore, it's perfectly possible to have something very vague and aspirational that basically gets you through this phase. You don't have to spell out in enormous detail what that's going to be. And Alex, to be fair, back in August, was the first person to spell out that actually the EU would be prepared to fudge this declaration if necessary. Now, that's not an easy thing to do because Mrs May would have to explain to the British Parliament why she was putting down €39 billion as an exit payment in return for almost nothing on the trade relationship. But the bottom line is that it can be very vague. The much harder question is the backstop question. The EU is, the Mbani is continuing to insist on the Northern Ireland backstop. In other words, that in the final eventuality, if it's not covered by the trade deal, Northern Ireland would remain in the single market and abide by the EU's customs code. And that's obviously anathema to the British side. Now, whether they can find a way through that, I don't know. My gut instinct is they probably will, because I think the EU ultimately does want a deal. And May wants to come back to Parliament with a deal. The real problem further down the road, whatever she comes back with, is getting it through Parliament where the numbers are so tight. Exactly. And one thing that you wrote about in your excellent Brexit briefing email, which everyone should sign up to and read, of course, was this talk of a blind Brexit. So this essentially means that the future relationship is fudged. All the difficult questions about Brexit are kicked into the long grass after March 2019. And as you said, that's difficult to get through Parliament because the Brexiters will say, well, hang on a minute, we're giving £39 billion to get a two-year transition and no sense of where we're going. The Remainers will also say, well, it's a transition to nowhere. We have no idea what our relationship's going to be. It's giving businesses two years of uncertainty, but not a lot more. Alex, what's your sense on whether a so-called blind Brexit would be something Brussels would go along to? I think a blind Brexit is going to happen in almost all scenarios because this is a non-binding document. This has to see the start of a trade negotiation begin after Brexit, but it's never necessarily going to survive elections in the UK, a change of government in the UK, a change of prime minister in the UK. It's not a binding treaty. And so to some extent, it is always blind. It's to be made in the years after Brexit. How vague it is, is a separate question. The beginning of this process, Germany in particular, wanted quite a detailed statement because they wanted it to be absolutely clear how becoming a non-member would make your economic circumstances different. Angela Merkel wanted that to be clear so politicians in Germany who might be tempted by this would know exactly what is lost on the other side. Now I think we're at such a late stage of this process and the politics in Britain looks so difficult that the thinking is that something vaguer that glides over some of the most difficult choices may actually make it easier for Theresa May in Westminster. Is it better for her to say we will be bound in what is effectively a customs union for a certain period of time? Or is it better to say, well, we'll aspire to something where we can have the best of both worlds? That's the key political decision that needs to be made. But in all circumstances, this is all up for grabs after Brexit. And that's been clear really since the beginning of it. And what's your sense on Northern Ireland about what happens there? Because I've also there's been this suggestion going round that the EU may try and decouple Northern Ireland from 
the mandate Michel Barnier has, that's something that could happen in the next few weeks because it's so intractable, the problem, that will essentially be fudged and it will be kicked like so much else into the discussions of the future relationship. Could you see that happening with a tacit agreement from the UK that it will accept a backstop in that future relationship? I very much doubt that unless Ireland did a complete about turn that the EU would leave them hanging and say, we don't need anything in the only legally binding agreement that's left between the EU and the UK Mm. after the day of Brexit, where we won't have anything on what would happen to Ireland in the event of these trade negotiations not going very well. Because fundamentally, if the UK is on a free trade agreement, orthodox free trade agreement, they think a backstop is necessary. It's not really a backstop. It would be the kind of base case for a lot of people here in Brussels and across the EU. So there will need to be a backstop in that withdrawal agreement. And if you talk to senior officials here, the more vague the future agreement is, the clearer that backstop needs to be. I think in purely political terms as well, it's very unlikely that the 27 will leave one of their own in the lurch. Mm. And so the question is, how can they change the cosmetics around this arrangement to make it more politically palatable? The Commission are looking at ways, for instance, like moving from what's direct ECJ jurisdiction over Northern Ireland at the moment, in the event the backstop is used, to indirect. They're looking at ways to show that there aren't that many checks that need to be done. And most importantly, There needs to be a link to the future relationship with the UK that implies that the backstop really is an insurance policy and not the base case. And that can be done through something that provides a customs arrangement for the entire UK. The legal form of that is still unclear, but that's one of the instruments both sides are looking to use to try and make this backstop look as if it would never be used. The other thing, James, you've had as well has been no deal. This talk that the UK is actually not going to get a deal or a deal can't be passed through the House of Commons and that the UK essentially stumbles towards leaving the bloc without formal arrangements. We've talked in the past on this podcast about how formal or informal that would be and how messy it would be. And we've seen all these papers released by the UK government. There's more to come here about its preparations for a no deal. But I don't think a no deal is realistically going to happen because there's not a majority for it in the House of Commons and that body is sovereign and they will find a way of stopping a no deal. Do you agree or do you still think it's a possibility? Well, it's certainly a possibility, but I broadly agree with you that I think that If we imagine a scenario where Mrs May strikes a deal with the EU and they vote on that is lost in the House of Commons, I do find it very hard to believe that MPs will allow the country to stagger towards what really would be an economically very, very difficult scenario, though what alternative they would take is unclear. I mean, I think the golden card in some ways that Mrs May has when it comes to the vote is this point, which is that however unpalatable the deal she does is with the EU. In other words, some people on the pro-European side will rail against the fact that it's a blind Brexit. Those on the pro-Brexit side will say it hasn't pinned down the need for a free trade agreement. However unpalatable that may be, the scenarios if she loses take us into a no-man's land, which is also even more uncomfortable for everybody. 
We don't know whether there'll be a no deal. We don't know whether the country might somehow move towards a second referendum. We don't know if the country might move somehow towards what actually would be a very unsatisfactory outcome, which would be another election, because it could prove totally inconclusive. So that actually is the thing that concentrates minds, I think, ultimately among those whose minds are open towards backing the idea of staying with Mrs May's deal, whatever it is. As far as all this stuff that's come out from Dexu is concerned... I've heard one person in in the department in the last 10 days saying nobody in the department takes all these documents very seriously. They're very descriptive about what might happen. But the bottom line is that when it comes to implementing plans, hiring people, spending money, taking steps, remarkably little is happening. There's very little serious action happening. In the end, if it came to no deal, the British would be scrambling an awful lot in the final stages. And finally, just briefly, Alex, what do you expect to happen over the next couple of weeks in the run-up to the summit? Is there going to be any kind of breakthroughs or any movement, or is it just going to be continued stalemate? I doubt there's going to be a breakthrough in the next couple of weeks. The summit is important in that. I think it's one of the first in a long time where EU leaders will really engage with some kind of concrete questions on Brexit before they were basically presented with an update on where they've got to and everyone said there are and endorsed the approach that had been agreed a long time before. This time, there's some core questions. When do they want to do a deal? In what way do they want to engage with checkers? Do they need to offer different advice to their negotiator on what approach he should take? What should they do on the Irish backstop? It's an important discussion, but we'll see the fruits of that probably in October when they have a summit then. And then November is looking like the date people are now mobilizing towards as the real end game. One prime minister I know who's saying they should just be forced to stay in the room until it's over. So uh, if James comes over, he might need to bring a few shirts. Other officials I speak to talk about December or even January, but we're certainly entering that kind of final phase. And that's it for this week's episode of FT Politics. Thank you very much to Jim, Miranda, James and Alex for joining us. If you'd like to see more FT journalism or read articles by the people we've had today, do check out our latest subscription offers at ft.com forward slash offer 50. FT Politics was presented by Sebastian Payne and produced by Anna Dedder. Until next time, thanks for listening. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.